This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hello and welcome to John Richardson and the Future Note Series 4, Episode 11, TikTok. <laughs> I am alone in my office, but I think within Maybe not spitting distance or reaching distance, but certainly singing distance to each other. Poetry <laughs> recital distance is Mr. Ed Gillespie and Mr. Mark Stevenson. Hello. 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 <laughs> yes, we are near. I am in my office in the garden and Ed is in my living room. And the reason we are together is because last night we went to an event. Oh, yeah? Yeah. yeah. You have a good time, did you? <laughs> I had a great time. I went to see the celebrity screening of a new sitcom or a new series of a sitcom written by my good friend Tim Reed, starring the wonderful Lucy Bowman. Oh, she's good. Yeah. And some other bloke. Yeah. But no, no. We were actually all in the same room together, weren't we? The three we were. Seats. We had a birthday beer to celebrate your birthday, didn't we? We realised when we got home, John, as well, that it was actually Mark's birthday the last time we were together three years ago. Oh, it was. And we had what? that weird drink of that pop. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. So... Uh, we can only ever get together on Mark's birthday. That is the rule from now on. Yeah. Well, that's not a bad excuse. So that's three times together in three years. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> is that what it is? That's not bad. And we talked of many things, of season ships and sailing wax and carbon removal. and Cabbages and kings. Naughty celebrities. Yeah. What we didn't talk about, because I didn't want to impinge on our listeners' joy at hearing you <laughs> recite for the first time the tale of your epic voyage. So since you joined us last, Ed and Mark have travelled across Europe together with children. Uh, Still friends. <laughs> there was a good vibe last night. You were fond of each other. So I assume all went well? <laughs> well, yeah. As much as it ever does when you're taking a journey which involves 44 different component parts. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely complicated. But the kids handled it really well, actually. I think that was the kind of amazing thing. They sort of took it in their stride. I mean, they got a bit grumpy when you're sort of dashing to make a connection because the train has run late and you've got four minutes to get across a busy station with luggage and at one point i did actually just have to pick up my daughter and put her over my shoulders in a fireman's lift oh lovely i'll be ready <laughs> yeah it was quite dramatic you feel like a kind of hero in a hollywood movie i'm obviously a veteran of slow travel train cations 
So mm-hmm. I love it. I mean, Mark might have a slightly different perspective. I, I think Mark tolerated it. Is this going to be like one of those news interviews where we have two people with opposing views and I pretend it's a progressive conversation? So that's the case for the defence of 44 trains in six days. <laughs> Mark Stevenson for the prosecution. Well, they say a change is as good as a rest, and I certainly had a change. <laughs> and no, there was many great things about it. I would have probably, having looked at the timetable, gone, let's let's do this later in the year when it'll be simpler. But nonetheless, it was good, and the kids got up to the mountains, and there were many good things about it. I said to me, well, what do you look for for in a holiday? And I say, well, I look for a little bit of luxury. And he went, oh. <laughs> I say, let me introduce you to the luxury of a P&O ferry from Dover oh, to Cadillac. Oh, my God. <laughs> I tell you what, if we wanted, there's a whole fucking episode on how shit P&O are and just how awful the experience is, how they treat people. God, I mean, don't even get me started. Is that was- P&O the one that sacked everyone? Yeah. Right. And has that has any impact on the quality of their service? Well, the tragedy is that, you know, obviously the people that have been brought in to work on the boats are absolutely charming. What you find is you've got this imported crew of Filipinos and various different nationalities who are all lovely, you know, and are doing their best work. But they're obviously being paid a lot less than the people that were sacked, which is obviously exploitative in one sense. But it's more the fact that you get the general sense that the company really doesn't care about you that much. It doesn't care about you at all. It was fascinating. And I have to say, there are certain unique experiences that you think, that's it, that's the zenith, that's the pinnacle. And I will never experience this thing at that extreme ever again. And one of those was the pizza that we bought <laughs> from the P&O bar on the way over, which without doubt, by a country mile, is the worst pizza <laughs> it literally like you couldn't conceive of it if you were literally trying to write down how could you make a pizza so bad you wouldn't have come up with anything close to this it was recognizably a pizza and unrecognizably food when you put it in your mouth it was pretty extraordinary it was art it was so bad you'd had to dedicate time to think how do we make it as bad as it could possibly be yeah and charge us 13 quid for it as well, which is... <laughs> I'm sort of intrigued now. It's just getting towards pointless futures where I'm, you've actually made that sound, I want to have the worst pizza I'm ever going to have. 13 quid. I tell you what, you get onto a P&O ferry, ask for the pizza from the bar, and you, that gift can be yours. Well, I am planning with my family over the summer to take a slow travel, no flight, summer holiday. And a lot of our listeners frequently email in about alternatives to plane travel and the traditional flight to Lanzarote and get off your tits for a week. So talk to us, having learned what you've learned, give some advice to our listeners about the benefits and the pitfalls to avoid of this sort of trip. What advice would you give to someone saying, right, I'm going to do that. I'm going to take my family away. Don't go with Ed. (laughs) <laughs> right. <laughs> hey, my artillery was masterful. It's masterful, it's optimism, certainly. <laughs> the highlight of no holiday should be an Excel spreadsheet of train times. No, but I tell you what, you're very thankful for it when you're trying to work out when you're doing your fifth connection of the day and going, which train number, which platform should we be on? You know, how long is our time to sprint the kids uh, across the station? So, why were you doing five in it? Was that, was that excellent that was a... question? Excellent question, John Richardson. <laughs> Was that a strict idea on where you wanted to end up or was that because you believe the train to be the fun bit? Going back to your earlier question as well, because I think this is really relevant, is like you've got to make the journey like part of the holiday. 
you can't just see it as that sort of transit bit where the holiday only begins when you flop onto the bed in your hotel room. You've got to see it as integral. So it requires a bit of a shifted perspective. And then in doing that, you've got to try and make it fun. I mean, one of the reasons it took us three days to get to Italy, where we were going to visit some very old friends of mine who have moved out there, Anglo-Italian couple. The first thing you've got to do is like try and break it up a little bit. So we did go a little bit of a longer route because I wanted to take in the Bernina Express, which is this amazing Swiss railway, which goes right across the top of the Alps through the snow over 196 bridges and through 55 tunnels. And, you know, Mark's son Emmett is a real train buff and I thought he would love it. And, and you know, what kid wouldn't want to kind of go through the mountains on an amazing train? So we had sort of gone out of our way a little bit to incorporate that. But Mark Smith, the guy who founded Seat 61, which is like the kind of the train travel guru who's been doing it for years, absolutely amazing man. His website is incredible. He always just says essential components for a great train journey are a good book and a corkscrew. Because then you don't have to drink screw top wine. <laughs> which is all you can usually find. I mean, the Venina Express was incredible and extraordinary. We also had another train ride down the side of Lake Como, which is incredible, only slightly hampered by the fact that the train had no toilets <laughs> or a yeah. buffet car. Oh, my God. That's a crime against humanity, isn't it? A train without a toilet? It was... Uh, don't get me started. Also, be aware, I would say, if somebody is offering you a traincation and you raise the question about what about food on trains, food on trains is not great. And if that person, say... And Mr. Ed Gillespie says, don't worry, the food on French trains is amazing. Don't listen to that because the next worst thing I ever put in my mouth besides the P&O pizza was the croque monsieur that I had in a TGV <laughs> on France, which was literally horrific. So yeah, uh, I would say a few more breaks for lunches. Nice. So we did have a nice break in Milan and we went for a very lucky yeah. pizza and whatever. So you did some proper mileage then. Oh my yeah. God. Because you did all this within a half term. This is a sort of trip that, I mean, this is what I'm planning to do over maybe a month in summer, the journey you've covered in that time. And I think that's very sensible, John. <laughs> to do it a bit longer. We were basically three days travel out, three days at our destination, three days travel home. So the ratio of travel to like yes. holiday technically was not great. I mean, it yeah. also got off on the worst foot as well because we got on the train in Norfolk embarking on this three-day multiple modal adventure and our first train broke down after one stop <laughs> no fucking trains no exactly so we got on a disc and we were thrown off at stone market because of a trackside fire and we just looked at each other and went oh god this is not starting well <laughs> <laughs> well i look forward to the anthology of poems that comes from this trip yeah i mean i asked emmett what were the best and worst bits of the holiday and he said the best bit was the Venera express and the worst bit was ed's poems <laughs> and I didn't even read any poems. A chip off the old block. No, he's just been brainwashing his children <laughs> against me. No, no, you would send text messages that were kind of in poem form, and 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 Emma would go, "Oh no, not another one of those poems." <laughs> <laughs> the train is booked. We've got somewhere to sit, but don't have breakfast because you can't have a shit. Lots of love, Ed. <laughs> You've expertly referenced public transport in France as if you knew that our first email comes from Sean Crisp. Should I do a sort of hello, hello style offensive French accent or should I just... No, go for it. Dear all, I really enjoy your podcast. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is Monty Python's... Uh, yeah. Or oh, is Inspector Clouseau? 
I sometimes fear that some of you are désespérés, as we say here in France. There aren't many reasons to be positive in the moment, but your stress on being in nature is always encouraging. Anyway, on to my question. Comment faire le gouvernement? How do the governments, particularly of a large developed country like La France, make public transport a viable alternative to the privately owned cow? Sean goes on to describe how she lives in a village in the northeast of France. There are two buses a day. Her son is at Lycée. There's one bus at 6.30 in the morning, one at 1.15. Obviously, there needs to be more than that, but her point is, in reality, for it to be a usable option for most people, there has to be at least one an hour, and that's never going to happen because everything in France is about half an hour away, and it's a big country. So she says, how does a big country, and it's relevant, I think, because in the news this week here, lots of cancelled bus services and bus services about to be cancelled because... Let's not beat around the bus. They are not profitable. So where is the future of public transport? Good question. In some ways, you have to make it free. Perhaps Sean's experience in terms of the regional challenge is a slightly different one. But actually, when we were staying in Calais on our traincation, they have a little bus service there called the Baladine, which is entirely free, which goes around the city centre to take people about. And that enables them to then exclude the private car but Sean's challenge is a slightly different one. It is tough. I mean, this is about where we decide to locate ourselves, isn't it? It's all very well to have that kind of rural idyll. But yes, it's going to be tough because you're going to struggle to find a service which will be regular and reliable when people are very scattered and disparate. I think where some of the technology is potentially coming through, I've heard examples of buses which don't follow set routes but like rural dwellers can sort of call a bus so almost like a sort of shared uber style arrangement so they don't follow set routes or timetables but when you've got enough people who are requesting one then the algorithm can like like a delivery driver can come and pick everyone up but obviously that also means it's not good if you've got time critical things like getting to school on time Public transport, and I think we should think of it as shared transport because shared ownership and shared use and car clubs are those type of mechanisms which might not be public transport in the conventional sense of the bus, but certainly reduce the number of cars and reduce the amount of car ownership and dramatically increase the efficiency with which cars are used then that might be a a kind of middle ground type of territory which might come to the fore more in future. I can solve this problem. You can solve this problem. I can solve this problem. (laughs) It's amazing how much schoolboy French sort of comes back to you when you're on a traincation through Europe and you're kind of like, I found myself confidently, A, ordering stuff at a bar because that's all you learn at the school isn't it how to order a sandwich and say thank you and what's in your pencil case and also of course endlessly reciting in my head the Eddie Izzard's famous massage Don Labra sketch uh-huh. because that's what you do when you're in France now you cannot at a certain age do anything but do that so for the record we saw no monkeys in trees anyway this show is about John Richardson not Eddie Izzard yeah fucking right anyway back to my solution which is, I think, it's the carbon price. Okay, so the reason that cars are favoured and we have a car-based society is because it's cheap to use them. If you make them very expensive and you say, look, if you look at the carbon intensity of the car, it's very high and people were charged and or taxed or the cost of the car or the cost of the fuel reflected that, 
then suddenly it would become a lot more economical for people to use public transport and a lot cheaper and a lot more profitable for people to run them. So really what you need to do is account for the damage that's being done environmentally by those different types of transport and then suddenly the whole economics change. And that's essentially where the economy is going to go over the next 50 years as carbon prices come in, as the cost of removing the carbon becomes a factor of everything that we do. You will hopefully see the result that actually economically when you cost in the damage being done by these various forms of transport, suddenly public transport or more frequent public transport is much more profitable than owning a car and using it. And that's how we're going to go, I think. In terms of the time scale on the priority on that, that sounds like initially what you do is you price ordinary working class people out of owning a car at a time when probably the public transport isn't where it should be yet because that investment needs to happen probably before. Well, that's where the Gilets Jaunes movement came from in France was a kind of protest movement against the hike in, in fuel prices. Yeah, it needs a systemic policy approach. And actually, France is one of the nations that has some success recently in doing that. The whole stuff they've been doing with short-haul flights, saying if there is a decent high-speed train link between these two cities, then we won't have short-haul flights to them. That's a systemic policy approach where there is already the infrastructure. So there is a model for doing this. But no, it's not going to happen overnight. It took us a long time to get into this fucking mess. It's going to take us a generation or two to get out of it. Hyper cool. So sorry, Sean, I have a philosophical answer for you, but probably not one that helps by next Wednesday. <laughs> Do you remember the French word for rubber? Hellraiser. <laughs> Une gomme. <laughs> gum. And she also says, in the interest of keeping this podcast occasionally light in tone, paper tissues or cloth hankies. <laughs> paper tissues, because I always forget to wash the hankies, and then you find them crunchy in your pocket. I've just recovered from a massive cold. And if I'd had to use cloth tankies, I think it would have been disgusting. Clogged up your washing machine. Yeah, something like that. But only if the tissues are made from recycled materials and can then be put in the recycling, I think. Staying on transport, this may be a technical question to which you don't know the answer, but I'm confident one of you will. Staying on transport is pretty much what I did for six days over my half time. <laughs> <laughs> Mathieu, I don't think he's from France, but I've got on a thing now. Hello. You briefly mentioned electric cars on your last episode. I have often wondered why manufacturers do not put solar panels on the roofs of electric cars. Surely this would remove some of the need for charging infrastructure. Is there a technical reason that this doesn't happen? Ah, well, it's a good point, actually, and you should have some. The point is that the amount of charge you need currently on an electric car is quite high, and the amount you get from a solar panel probably wouldn't be very much. So I think there's probably a reason why... The technology in there, yeah, but it is ridiculous that, you know, you park your car because most people, they drive to an office and they park their car and it's sat there doing nothing. Yes, it should be charging. What you do see quite often in some corporate blocks is they have solar power charging in the car park. So they've got a system which then feeds the cars. So I think as the technology evolves, we'll get more of that. But I just think at the moment, it's a cost to energy density ratio thing that's making it not work. But I, I'm happy to be corrected on this by anybody who actually knows what they're talking about. That is just a, a guess on my part. <laughs> Ed, do you know what you're talking about? <laughs> no, I think Mark's right. Apart from anything else, a solar-panelled car would look quite cool. And I know when they've done the big solar challenges, these endurance journey ones where they've built a solar car to see how far it can go on its own charge. But, you know, they're hyper-light-weighted materials used on those in order to make the vehicle go as far as possible. And they look like a lozenge. They look like un gomme covered in the solar panels. <laughs> the fuck is happening I don't know Shouldn't say that. <laughs> Linda in Stratford staying on electric cars is all fucking slick this week isn't it my god it's like Ed's travel itinerary one thing leads on to another yeah 
sprinting to platform seven now. <laughs> Linda in Stratford says, Hi guys, interesting to hear Mark in favour of the Wyoming electric car ban. Not. Did he offer them a campaign song? Dirty old engine, how we do love you, light of our lives, can't let you go. No, that's poetry, that is. Do you know that's a quantum pig song? It is, and she goes on to say, I've loved seeing Quantum Pig live three times now. Keep it up. Love and best wishes, Linda in Stratford-on-Avon. She must be like one of your groupies. She's like seen almost half your gigs. It's prog rock. There's no such thing as a groupie. And uh, yes, we've done eight gigs, I think, in total, so she's been through them. That's very sweet. We've got crossover. Everybody comes to prog in the end. We've got listeners now texting us and emailing us. Jez, our long-term listener, tweeted, mm-hmm. says, you ruined my punk rock credentials by making me listen to Prog Rock, which I'm really enjoying. <laughs> it's all a secret plan by me to infect our listenership with the love of King Crimson and Lonely Robot and Frost and Pink Floyd. Don't say secret plan, mate. I'll only do another slick link. Is that what you want? <laughs> another bloody slick link into an email? Is that what you're after? Oh, that's what I'm after. That's what I want. Paul says, hello, John, Mark, and Ed, exclamation mark. I like that. <laughs> you don't put the exclamation mark it's sort of like a hello there but with the exclamation mark I imagine him booting the door in like flash heart <laughs> long time first time I encountered Mark on his tour for Optimist Guide for the Future some years ago in Sheffield and have a fab I think he meant a fab chat over a few pints afterwards but he's put we had a fab cat over a few pints so unless there's something disgusting on your rider you want to tell me about I remember that fab cat that was uh, <laughs> no I think he means chat yeah he is up for the League of Pragmatic Optimists and is looking forward to being involved in a local group. He writes about our episode on inequality. The conversation on inequality took me to thoughts bordering on conspiracism as we go from your secret plans. Is it controversial to state that people feeling their lives are precarious benefits those corporations that seek to monopolize power and wealth, at least in the short term, which is, of course, all they're interested in? Is it that the polycrisis we're enduring now could be somehow facilitated by Facebook, Google, BP, SO, etc. because it benefits them. I'm not claiming it's deliberate, an actual conspiracy of moustache-twirling villains around a table, but more likely an emergent property of their actions and policies that creates a positive feedback loop, an evolutionary environment that favours them. Much like the first photosynthesizers that raise the oxygen level until it poisoned them. It's Naomi Klein's disaster capitalism, and if this is the case, it makes the financial and political power they wield all the more problematic. What can we do about it? It's a very interesting point about how ecosystems live and die. And I think I've mentioned this before, you know, an ecosystems theory, a really functioning ecosystem creates the ability for more life to occur. So in a really good functioning ecosystem, everybody in the ecosystem feeds into everybody else, somebody else's waste is somebody else's food, all that kind of stuff. And everything is on a virtuous circle going upwards. Then you sometimes will get an invasive species and what it will normally do to begin with is it will adapt to its environment in order to survive. But then if it starts to succeed, it starts to become dominant and it starts to try and stop other people adapting around it and keep things the same. And then eventually it ends up dying because the ecosystem isn't thriving. So there's actually a very strong precedent to what was said in that email in ecosystem theory anyway. And I think you could definitely see that right now. But that's where things like an intervention where, for instance, like putting a price on carbon, for instance, would start to twist that in the other direction because suddenly the thing that becomes profitable for those entities becomes less so and therefore they are forced to adapt. And this is where policy on things like net zero and climate change might be one of the levers by which we tweak that ecosystem to become healthier. I'd agree with that. And I think that if you apply the ecosystems theory type thinking to the work of James Plunkett, when he's talking about breaking up some of these megalithic platforms that pull references like Facebook and Google, essentially, if you 
make those platforms interoperable and then force them to share their data and give people back retention and ownership of their own data, that's like a redistribution of the resource, which is currently being hogged and, if you like, siphoned up for their own commercial benefit. So, Mark, we know you you enjoy uh, cat with your listeners after your gigs, you sick bastard. <laughs> and Sarah says, I don't know if you've covered the subject of pets in this series, but that is my question, particularly relating to dogs. Do you ever have a dog with your listeners after after a gig? Depends <laughs> on the gig, really. Yeah, exactly. When it's gone really well, cancel the cat. Bring me a Labrador. <laughs> yeah, and if it's not good, it's just like I'll just do a gerbil. <laughs> I realise this is a very controversial subject and will piss a lot of people off, as it seems the whole nation acquired at least one dog during lockdown. I find it bizarre that dog owners treat their animals like or better than members of their family, but are happy to consume vast quantities of factory-farmed meat, not to mention the huge amounts of food needed for their pets. I find walking in the countryside has been tainted by the numbers of plastic bags of poo hanging from the branches of trees, not to mention the animals themselves throwing their muddy bodies and paws at me while their owners laugh and say, he's just being friendly. I'd be interested in a discussion on your podcast on the future of pets. Well... <laughs> Well, we did talk about this before, didn't we? The kind of, I remember referring to the hanging gardens of Jobilon. Yeah. Just some Glaswegian had described the poo bags tied in the tree. I mean, the, the thing is, yes, pet ownership massively went up during the pandemic. And I think owning pets is not a universal good. It obviously has a huge benefit for people because loving something and having that unconditional love come back the other way and caring and nurturing for another life is all positive and can have all sorts of benefits for your sort of mental... Yeah, that only happens with dogs, though, doesn't it? Not with cats. You don't, get, you don't <laughs> yeah. get unconditional love back from a cat. No, exactly. The point that Sarah's making is, yes, the biggest impact they have is this vast amount of meat and fish. And uh, I've joked about this because we feed our cats tuna and it's like a cat, has never been found in the middle of the Pacific hoiking a bluefin out of the water with its claws. <laughs> Cats do not naturally eat tuna. And dogs are omnivores. Anyone who's owned a dog, as I grew up with dogs, will know that dogs eat any old shit. And sometimes literally shit. So they're not so fussy. And yet we have this vast meat and fish industry, which has huge impact. So changing the diets of our pets is really important. There's lots of work on insect protein and other forms of protein going into dog and cat food with no kind of deleterious effects for the cats themselves. Cats are a bit more difficult because they are obligate carnivores. They have to eat flesh. They're not like scavengers like dogs. But also, as a result of that, I mean, something like 300 million, I think, is the rough estimated figure of small mammals and birds killed by domestic cats in the UK every year. So it's carnage out there. It's carnage out there. So if you've got a cat, put a bloody bell on it, please. Cowbell. A cowbell. While we're talking about music. <laughs> I, um, I'm going to hesitate to gamble that you are not a pet fan. Me? Oh, what makes you say that, John? I'm interested. It doesn't seem to fit into your way of thinking. That's my assumption. I'm happy to be proved wrong, but I don't see you sat stroking an animal of an evening. No, I, I have a quick cat with my fans after a game. You have a cat with your fans, of course you do. You've earned it, mate. Really tough business, this. My feeling is that if you're going to look after another sentient creature, then you need to be able to dedicate quite a lot of 
time to that and care to that. And also there's an environmental impact as well. And, you know, I've already got two kids and I've got to try and save the planet. So I, I don't think I'd be a good owner. And if I don't think I'd be a good owner, then I wouldn't have a pet. Mm-hmm. Also, quite frankly, it's just a logistical nightmare. Like, oh, God, go on holiday. What do you do with the pets? No, fuck them. Really? I don't want them. Get them out of my house. Don't want them at all. <laughs> How was right then? <laughs> <laughs> it was all coy until, do you know what? Fuck them. I was like, yeah. <laughs> I was right. <laughs> well, I wouldn't want people listening to this thing that we're anti the relationship that you can have with an animal. I think that I know some people, they're particularly older friends of mine, or perhaps people who have been there with their partners died in particular, where their relationship with their pet, their dog in particular, is hugely beneficial for mental health. So. Absolutely. But I think there is, a, as with everything, there's been a fucking commercialization of it, which is like, oh, and you've got a dog, now you need to buy it this, now you need to buy it that. And suddenly you've got an extra unit of consumption, which kind of, I think, taints the genuine relationship you can have with an animal that you love and loves you back. I did read a really classic, extreme, controversial, slightly whingy Guardian article. That's every Guardian (laughs) article. (laughs) I would say this one was a real piece of work because it was basically a guy arguing that all pets were essentially prisoners engaged in the form of Stockholm Syndrome with their owners because pets don't have any choice in the matter about where they end up. It's how I feel on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) You'll never leave. (laughs) We talked last night and we talk on the podcast about the future that you want to build. And there's certainly no place for me in saying pet ownership can't be part of a future because I know what it means to people. And as we talk about emergent understanding of diverse brains and when I made the OCD documentary about 15 years ago, the people with the most severe OCD that we filmed with all had pets and found that the pet was an essential way of rationalizing some of the parts of their brain that they knew would run away with them. An animal doesn't care that you want to switch the lights on and off seven times and that was such a genuine help to people in their day-to-day existence I think there is a change in the industry of pet ownership I know that there's companies that do vegetarian and vegan delivered meal plans so that there probably is more of a future for it but the ethical discussion on when you say owning an animal that to me is another sort of interesting movement that we need to think about can you really own an animal and it's the idea that we just accept that you can part of how we deal with the planet in general there's something there isn't there about the size of a responsible family and the responsible number of pets because you do get folk who have 27 cats or think that having six dogs is a sensible plan which might again be excessive i think when you look at if you go back to a sort of carbon perspective as well i mean owning a medium-sized dog can have a similar carbon emissions to running an SUV. When you start to make those sort of benchmarks, if you've got three or four large dogs, that's a hell of a footprint. Yeah, I would also ward against, though, in making people own lots of cats feel bad because looking at our listenership figures, I think that may be most of our audience. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, Ed, what you're saying is if you have a big dog, you should ride it to the supermarket. Yeah, exactly. Get the mileage out of it. It's basically an SUV. <laughs> Create a small wagon to go behind it. You can put your weekly shop in. Yeah. Oh, I think that's sound advice. I think we've got there in the end. <laughs> You're allowed to have a dog. It's a car as well. I've been watching you two do this and it's distressing me. <laughs> what I think of them is like, okay, if we look at the original series kind of set of questions, how fucked is it? How do we get this fucked? And how do we unfuck ourselves? Your answer is, how fucked is it? There are too many dogs. Mm-hmm. How do we get this fucked? Because we kind of commercialized dog 
ownership and all that kind of stuff. And how do we fuck it is we turn the dogs into vehicles. When <laughs> <laughs> we tie every topic back together, we could use big dogs in rural France as a bus service <laughs> for children going to school. <laughs> we solved all our problems. You could get the dog to cook the pizza on the P&O ferry and it yeah. couldn't do a worse job. Well, there we go. And then our ongoing quest to find our favourite listener, I must admit I have a soft spot for just the sheer length and verbosity of this email from Gary Colden-Smith on a subject we asked for emails and messages on recently, that the most regretted purchase of your life feeding back to a feature we used to do, Pointless Futures. And I think there's news on the testicuzzi, isn't there? No, there is. There is. Someone tweeted the wonderful... 24-carat gold-plated oligarch edition for ultimate happiness. You see what they've done there? 20,000 quid yep. for a limited edition of 50 gold-plated testicuzzis. So, wow. Uh, Julian, Julian, get me my gold-plated <laughs> testicuzzi. God, you, know, you need an acid latte to be able to use that thing. Yes, indeed. So, Gary says, my most regretted purchase, and I believe one shared by the majority of UK households, that's a bold claim, is the fondue set. Hmm. We've been sold the idea that melting two kilos of bland cheese and dipping chunks of Tesco finest sourdough rye into the resulting pos-coloured magma (laughs) will in some way allow us to relive a skiing holiday we'd rather forget because the reality was hours of queuing a dislocated knee, blistered lips from eating red-hot fucking melted cheese. (laughs) Even worse, there's now such thing as the oil fondue where you put methylated spirits heated in a deep fat fryer into the middle of your dining table then let your kids cook their own food skewered onto foot long forks <laughs> the accompanying booklet may have helpful warnings such as hot oil may cause burns no shit Sherlock sadly they don't include vouchers offering two for one on skin grafts and pressure garments the fondue set scandal has been going on for decades my parents bought one in the 70s and they would have regarded putting pepper on mints and tatties exotic I'm <laughs> Vince, there will be the subject of the next mis-selling class action law firm set up specifically to handle the millions of applicants. It's worth noting that the problem of accessing cheese and carb overloads has long been solved by Scottish ingenuity. As a Scot, I'm in the fortuitous position of being able to purchase a macaroni cheese pie from any questionable food outlet, possibly even deep fried, a delicacy little known out with these Heather Clayed Lands. Cheers, Gary Colden Smith. A deep fried macaroni cheese pie. Get in me. <laughs> yes, please. Well, I'm with Gary. I mean, it's <laughs> extreme safety hazard. Yeah, it's a stupid idea. As he says, it's incredibly dangerous. And it's a bit like when you're with your beloved and they say, oh, let's uh, get some candles on and get some massage oil. You think, you've just covered me in oil next to a naked flame. This is not a sensible thing to do. <laughs> I think the Chinese would go one better, though, don't they? I mean, I remember eating like Sichuan hot pot, which is like boiling chili oil. So not only is it going to burn you in temperature, it's also going to drive a bit of extreme spice into the wound at the same time. Indeed. Stick that in the testicuzzi. No, it just reminds me of something that Emmett said. Because it's the first time Emmett had ever been abroad. So he went to sort of four countries in a row. And at one point he said, what do you think of all these different countries? And what do you think? He says, Daddy, what they do in these countries is they add carbs to cheese <laughs> and that, that's what they eat. And I was like, I mean, actually, crop and pizza. Basically, you just take carbs and cheese for a week. 
tells me that you're not giving her enough cheese on toast at home, which is the first time I've become worried about you as a parent, because generally I think you're both very good parents. But if Emma is at his age suddenly having the realisation that you can melt cheese onto carbs, then you have failed him to this point. No, no, he no, he likes carbs and cheese. It's just that he thought it was excessive the amount that the Europeans did it. But he's like, Daddy, I haven't seen a vegetable. <laughs> well, do you want to get on to uh, tomato shortages and empty shelves in the supermarket? It's another hot topic. Yeah, it's February. We're not supposed to have tomatoes on the shelf in February. This thing drives me mad. I know I know there are more sustainable ways of producing, but tomatoes at this time of year taste shit. <laughs> they don't taste of anything. I said this to my daughter because she was like saying, can we buy some tomatoes? I said, we have such a glut off the allotment, you know, when you grow your own and there's nothing that tastes better than a sun-warmed ripe tomato straight off the vine. Firm young carrot. Exactly, with the juice dribbling down your chin and it's absolutely sensational. And then you get these hard, pale red nuggets of force-grown tomato at this time of year and they're awful. They're awful. They're a simulacrum. So, yeah, I get the fact that people are frustrated that there aren't fresh tomatoes on the shelves, but hey, come on, it's February. But they're eating them all across Europe. Well, yeah, they've got more sun. <laughs> well, actually, some of the reasons that we is because there's been less good harvests in Europe because of weather caused by climate change. And welcome to the fucking consequences of your actions, humanity. If you change the climate, guess what? Things are going to go differently. What's your favourite quote? My favourite quote is Robert Louis Stevenson's Sooner or later, everybody sits down to a feast of consequences. Oh, I love that line. I love that line. Oh, God. Oh, no. <laughs> oh god i think we've done quite well uh, this has been a good funny and uh, pragmatic and i'd say a vaguely positive episode rather last minute you've just snuck in a quote that is going to stop me sleeping for a fucking week <laughs> <laughs> not just climate consequence but just the idea that in my own life one day i'm going to sit down to a plate of consequences of all my actions oh god well i'm doing that later tonight because my eldest brother is coming down to see me. And in a rash decision last year, as I know he's a big Rick Wakeman fan, he was doing two gigs back-to-back at the London Palladium, and which he will do four of his classic albums. And I thought, oh, he would like that. So I bought two tickets for each. And now I'm going to have to go tonight and the following night. And my wife said, said how do you feel about going to these gigs? Because they're kind of probably sort of like them. And I just said, do you know what? Everybody sits down to feast. <laughs> 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 Four Rick Wakeman albums over two nights. I mean, that's too much prog even for me. <laughs> I think this is our slickest podcast today. I think every email has led on. We began by talking about having to go to events that you might not have wanted to go to, but you were there to see people you care for. And we've ended on the same thing. So you were last night having to sit through Meet the Richardson so that you could have a pint with me and Ed. And tonight you're going to Rick Makeman because you love your brother. You love your brother. You love your brother. I'll tell you something else I wanted to see last night as well was my friend Tim Reed. Yes, lovely Tim Reed. Tell you why I found it particularly enlightening and lovely was I met Tim, oh God, decade, 12 years ago or something like that. And when we were both doing some work for Team GP, the Olympic team. Bobsleigh, downhill skeleton. Just general strategy and how to think about the world. Oh yeah, strategy. Anyway, I was sat next to him and we were chatting and getting to know each other and he said, I do all this strategy stuff and this innovation stuff. He says, I really want to be a comedy writer. I'm really trying to work on that. And then here it is, 10 years later, 12 years later, I'm sitting there, five series of Meet the Richards Commission, which is the biggest success on Dave they've had since Taskmaster, I think. He also wrote one of the biggest things for the BBC, which is Peter Kay's car share. And he used to think, 
oh, that's great. Like 10 years ago, I met this guy saying, I really want to try and be a comedy writer. And there he is with you, literally succeeding his ass off. And I thought that proves that there's always optimism in the world because somebody can take something as difficult as trying to become a successful comedy writer in an incredibly competitive market and end up doing something really brilliant. I just wanted to shout out to Tim and say, well done, mate. <laughs> Hopefully he's listening to the end. <laughs> and to Gary Calden-Smith, I will also offer this piece of wonderful optimistic news that if you have a fondue set you haven't used, Pie Minister have just launched the Gravy Fondue, where they'll deliver to your table a pot of steaming hot gravy and some roast potatoes and chips and onion rings to dip in it. Oh and I, for God. one, think that is a sign that the world is worth saving. <laughs> <laughs> the gravy fondue. Yeah, take your massive dog down to Prime Minister and eat a bucket of gravy. Here, here, Britain. Gravy is so British, isn't it? Yeah. It's funny. My Ukrainian guests just don't understand gravy. You just have to call it a beef jew. I remember cooking them their first roast dinner and put the gravy jug on the table, and they were like, what is this? And then you sort of have struggle. They become, get... Have they become French, the Ukrainians? What is it? It's a gastronomic experience, but yeah, it's a sort of like meat sauce. <laughs> but then when they've had it, surely they went, oh, we should cover all meals in savoury brown slop. Well, yeah, because this is what we also learned in Italy, is like our friend Saatchi, who also joined us, Saatchi Lloyd, has written some amazing books about future carbon dystopias for young children and young adults, which are brilliant, the carbon diaries. But uh, she said, having moved to Italy, she said, the British are swampers. We pile all the food on the same plate and then we cover it in gravy. Whereas the Italians have their, their little pasta course and then they have their meat course, their main course or their fish course, and then they have their salad. They eat them all separately, whereas we just stack it all together and drown it. Yeah, I know. There was a moment, wasn't there? So our lovely hosts, Antonio and Julia, she's English and he's Italian. And I cooked a meal on the last night and I basically cooked like a quite a nice pasta dish and a nice little fennel and rocket salad, you know, and we all put them on the plates together at the same time as you would as English people. And he was like, you could see he was traumatized. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, if I haven't eaten the salad and the pasta at the same time, I will do it out of politeness, but this is an abomination. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I sometimes go to warm the plates for our dinner and think, oh, I'm going to put salad on them as well. But it never occurs to me to serve them separately because we're British and we're busy. We don't got time for all these continentals having a seven-hour lunch. Separate course for your bloody olives. Get it down, yeah? Get out in fields, mate. There's no tomatoes to tend to. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure as ever. I guess if this is 11, then there's only one left, is there? There's one left and there's the large special after that. Yeah, so there will be a live show, but more importantly, this is your last chance to have a question read out on a series that has been specifically for that purpose. So if you have any burning questions that uh, you want answered before we take a brief hiatus at the end of this series, get them in and do it here. You can reach us by email at hello at johnandthefuturenauts.com. That's hello at John, J-O-N, and the future notes, all one word, dot com. We have our own show Twitter account, which is at J and the F. And of course, you can reach us individually on Twitter too. I am at Ron Richardson, John Richardson with the first letter swapped around. That's what I've done there. And you can reach Ed and Mark at the following. I'm Ed Gillespie at Frucool, which is at F-R-U-C-O-O-L. And I'm Mark Stevenson, and you can find me at Optimist on Tour. 
I love the way you promise a brief hiatus. Our track record on <laughs> our track record of brief is not good. <laughs> I edited out of Sarah's email where she says I sort of gave up on you after the end of series three because I kept checking back for series four and it was never there. I just assumed you'd all disappeared. <laughs> and so she's working her way through series four now. But there will be a five at some point, won't there? This has been fun, this one. Exactly. Yeah. We've got a few ideas. We've got a few ideas. Where does the week ahead find you? Not travelling by train 46 times in a week, I assume. Oh, I've got to go back to Norfolk right now. <laughs> as soon as you're going to take your mum to the station and I'm going to dash to the station to go home to my wee girl. Mm. And uh, I'm going to see Rick Wakeman twice. Oh, uh, well. <laughs> First prize, a night with Rick Wakeman. Second prize, two nights with Rick Wakeman. <laughs> yes. Third prize, two nights with Rick Wakeman with your brother. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have a lovely time and you know you will. Yeah, I will. Do we like Rick Wakeman? Yes. Yes, we do like Rick and He's quite funny. Have a wonderful time. Thank you for joining us and we will see you next time. Take care of yourselves. Cheerio! Cheerio! Bye! Bye.